get started here. We'll open in prayer. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, holy is your name. Thank you once more for seeking us before we sought you and the grace you bestowed on us to believe in faith. We're, we're here to know you and knowing you to find wisdom, wisdom to sustain us in this life, Lord. I pray your Holy Spirit dwelling in us will administer your truth as we look today at your sovereignty and the promises that flow from your purposes. And always, Lord, take us to the cross. In praise, in worship, we study Paul's prayers here for your truth and call on your name, the name of the Lord, for direction. I just pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So uh, today we're going to look at the sovereignty of God. Do we really believe God's sovereign? And, or do we have problems with that? Is it a, a pro forma belief we have without really thinking about it? You know, I've, I've all, often um, wondered about the relationship between God's sovereignty and faith. And maybe I spend too much time contemplating both. I've often thought, though, that, you know, not to question uh, either one is, is kind of to put your head in the sand and, and say, I believe, and just stop there. And it brings a kind of a, a certain type of fatalism to our prayers, I think. Let me ask you this kind of a small, small group here today. Has there been any change in your prayer since we started this class? I mean, it's a rhetorical question, but I was wondering about that this week. You know, I mentioned in the first class that I was disappointed that God didn't restore John to health. And I'm sure many of you felt the same way, had the same reaction. I know some among us have considered leaving this church. Uh, I think his passing has challenged us on a lot of... Uh, different levels. You know, back in December, we had that service for him. And there were a lot of people attending that don't go to Pacific Hope. And they probably don't have any idea of the challenges that are before us then and continuing to the present. However, I'm comforted by another person in the Bible who prayed. And his prayer wasn't answered the way that uh, he hoped it would be. You know, when, when Jesus prayed in Gethsemane for the cup of God's wrath to pass, if there was any other way, we read Mark 14, 32 to 36. I think we have this up there, yeah. And they went to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter, James, and John, and he began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little further, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. So who am I to question God? If his own son, sorrowful unto death, submits and obeys, what discouragement can I have when that's exactly what saved us? You know, I, I didn't read any indication in the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, or Luke that God spoke back to Jesus' prayer and said no or said anything. All I note was silence, mystery. You know, the, the prayers of God's people, they're a crucial means by which we choose to execute his sovereign purposes. 
And when God's sovereign purposes are accomplished, though I find myself praising him for what he has accomplished, even though it may not have been according to my initial prayer, our prayers and, and the answer to our prayers fall within the sweep of the sovereignty of the one who wears a human face that's shattered by scars from thorns. All of God's sovereignty is mediated through the one who is crucified on our behalf. I, I, we all know that. The mystery of prayer, though, remains. And hopefully, it becomes, it dissolves into worship and gratitude. It becomes far easier, I think, to accept the mysteries of divine sovereignty when I reckon that God's love is as great as his divine sovereignty. Today we're going to look at a prayer that uniquely captures this tension between God's sovereignty and our responsibility to act. You know, this video is longer uh, than normal. It's about 17 minutes. And I, Carson does another excellent, excellent explanation on the prayer from Ephesians uh, 1, 3 to 23. If you have your Bibles, uh, please turn there to reference this passage as uh, we look at the video now. In this sixth session of the series, Praying with Paul, we fasten our attention on a very different sort of passage. So far, up to now, we have looked primarily at Paul's petitions, what he's asked God for, and the context in which he makes his requests. But in this passage, all the focus is on praise. So the question becomes, what does Paul thank God for? What does he praise God for? What lies at the heart of the Apostle's adoration and praise of the living God? I want to approach this passage, Ephesians chapter 1, in a slightly different way. Let me begin with a tangential question. Does prayer change things? Many of us were reared in homes where we had a little plaque on our walls. Prayer changes things. And certainly there are lots and lots of instances in Scripture in which God answers specific prayers, and in that sense, surely you want to say prayer changes things. But on the other hand, some Christians have warned against a, a kind of view of prayer in which God, poor chap, wouldn't have thought the right answer up unless we told him what to do and asked him for a specific blessing. And so some people have said, including as renowned a Bible teacher as John Stott, prayer does not so much change things as change us. And the heart of our praying in this view is, is that we would be conformed to the will of God and the mind of God, not so much that we change God's mind, but that God changes our minds. Uh, prayer changes things in that respect. Part of our problem when we think about these things, I suspect, is that we kid ourselves into thinking that even when we're praying, we're adding something completely independent of God. That is, God does so much, and then we add a little bit of advice or a little request that is itself completely independent of God. But God's sovereignty 
the kind of sovereignty the Bible talks about where even what is in the mind and heart of the king is still in the Lord's hands. The, the kind of, of God who orders our days before anything was, was, was actually worked out. Our days are written in the, in the books of God according to uh, Psalm 139. This kind of God is so working within us that although we are praying, God is, as it were, working in us to enable us so to pray. We know this in salvation itself. We sing old songs like, I sought the Lord, and afterward I knew He moved my heart to seek Him seeking me. T'was not so much that I on you took hold as you, dear Lord, on me. And, and Christians recognize that sort of way of thinking about God all the time. We believe. That's what we do. That is our action. It's not that God believes for us. On the other hand, faith itself is viewed as a gift from God, to use the language of Ephesians 2. So, we ask God for good things and seek God's face, and He, he gives them. He, he demands that we ask, but at the same time, we acknowledge that it is God working in us, or else we wouldn't have had a heart that sought the right things, that looked for the right things, that, that asked for the right things. So, there is a way of looking at all of salvation from God's perspective, and that ought to call forth massive praise. You see the sheer God-centeredness of everything that we enjoy as Christians, and that is what characterizes this remarkable prayer in Ephesians chapter 1. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. That expression itself is worth teasing out at great length, but I press on to, to mention some of the things for which Paul especially thanks God. For a start, he thanks God for having chosen us. He chose us in Him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in His sight. Why, why should that surprise us? Think of how God chose Abraham. It's not as if Abraham woke up one morning and was having his devotions and, and said, you know, God, I, I have a very good idea. This whole world is heading for disaster again. We've been through the flood, and now we've had the Tower of Babel, and there's, there's more destruction and sin and violence around. I, I suggest we begin a whole new human race. I'll volunteer. I'll be the, the super granddaddy. Um, I'll be your guy, as it were. You make my offspring as numerous as the stars of the heaven, as numerous as the sand by the seashore, and uh, I will enter into a covenant with you to obey you, and we'll be a new humanity. Isn't that a great idea, God? We'll call it the covenant with Abraham. But that's not what happens. God chooses Abraham, and Abraham goes. And moreover, you see the same thing with Moses. When Moses thinks he's going to do it all by himself and volunteer for God, as it were, it doesn't turn out too well. He soon finds himself fleeing down to the land of Midian with the police of Pharaoh on his tail because he has committed murder, and he finds himself on the backside of a desert until he's 80 years old. No, at all the great turning points in the history of redemption, God takes the initiative. God chooses the one who will rebuild the temple, for example. And in the fullness of time, God sends forth His Son. So even in our individual redemption, we come to genuine faith. But we must understand that 
that God chose us before the beginning of the world, before the foundation of the world. And that ought to be a cause for astonishing gratitude, just overwhelmed uh, adoration when we think of God's love on our behalf. But there's more. He chose us in Him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in His sight. In love, He predestined us for adoption to sonship. He chose us out of love, and not simply that our status would be different, but that we would become sons. The overtone of sonship in Scripture involves intimacy and and replication, doing the same thing. You, You see, most sons today do not end up doing vocationally what their parents did. But in the ancient world, if you were the son of a farmer, you were likely to become a farmer. If you were the son of a butcher, you were likely to become a butcher. If you were the son of a baker, you were going to become a baker. That's usually the way it worked out, 90, 95, 98%. That's the way families were identified. Jesus himself was known as the son of a carpenter because Joseph, his so-called father, his presumed father, was himself a carpenter. And in one remarkable passage in Mark 6, Jesus himself is called the carpenter. Or um, in the late Middle Ages, uh, if your name was Stradivarius, you made violins. You learned the trade from your father. That identified you. You learned the trade from him. That was your rank in society. It was your place in society. It was what you did. You were known that way as being the son of the carpenter or the son of the violin maker or whatever. So what does it mean to be son of God? And you realize that that expression is freighted again and again and again with different characteristics of God. Blessed are the peacemakers, Jesus says, for they shall be called the sons of God. In other words, the assumption is that God is the supreme peacemaker. And insofar as we make peace, we're, we're acting like God. We're, we're showing ourselves, dare I say it, to belong to the God family. Not that we are God at any deep level of our being, but we're acting like Him. Or in the same way that the real sons of Abraham are those who demonstrate Abraham's faith, who live like Abraham, not those who simply happen to have Abraham's genes. So, in the very last book of the Bible, in the final vision, the person who comes to glory, to the new heaven and the new earth, with resurrection existence, he will be God's son, the text says, children of the living God, acting like God in all ways that human beings can be like God. Obviously, there's some ways in which we can't be like God. God says to Christians, be perfect, for I am perfect. He says, be holy, for I am holy. He does not say, be omnipotent, for I am omnipotent. God has some attributes that cannot be shared with us. But insofar as God's attributes can be shared with us, if we are acting as His sons by this powerful, transforming gospel, then increasingly in all of those domains we are acting like God. He loves. We love because He first loved us. And and we have received from Him not only God's eternal decree, as it were, but in love, God predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with His pleasure and will to the praise of His glorious grace which He has freely given us 
in the one he loves. Do you hear the intensity? This is not some decree of mere mathematical precision or the like. This is itself the outflow of God's fastening his affection on us and we in turn fasten our affection on him and offer praise to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in the heavenly realms. And again, verse 7, in Christ, the one God loves, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. Here we have the cross, the supreme gift, the heart of Paul's message, the heart of what the gospel is. Or again, with all wisdom and understanding, God made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure. Do you see, God could have, in theory, saved us without explaining his plans to us. He's God. He can do what he wants. He could have reached down and saved men and women from every tongue and tribe and people and nation and explained nothing, just done it because he chose to do it. But instead, what God has done is he's explained his own plan through what we call the Old Testament, all of these patterns and trajectories that look forward, temple and priest, sacrifice for sin, all of these promises of God, of a king who is coming, a high priest who is coming, a new covenant that's coming, that's, that's grounded in the blood of the supreme sacrifice, the suffering servant who is simultaneously the king of kings and the Lord of lords. All these things he has laid out until in the fullness of time they explode into view in the coming of Christ. And all of these things after the event of the cross, after the event of the resurrection, after the event of the ascension, they're further explained to us in letters and apocalyptic description in the books of, of the New Testament, the New Covenant Scriptures. God has not only saved us, He has chosen to explain to us the hidden things of the past, the mystery of His will. That's what the text says. With all wisdom and understanding, He made known to us the mystery of His will according to His good pleasure which He purposed in Christ. And so on and so on until we come to the culmination. When you believed, you were marked in Him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession. We not only have the grace of God, the Father, and the glory of Christ, His redeeming Son, completing the description of the work of the Holy Trinity, we have the work of the Holy Spirit, who amongst other things comes and convicts us of sin and enables us to see and understand and believe and then the Holy Spirit himself is given to us almost as it were as the stamp of God on our lives. Today we tear off a check and sign it and it's our signature that validates it. In the ancient world what people often had was a kind of little seal all embossed with a variety of figures and so on and on an ink pad or the like it could be pressed on a piece of papyrus paper or it could be pressed into soft clay to, to make the promise, the document, legal, certified, truly, truly belonging to the person whose seal this was. Well, there is a sense in which the Holy Spirit is given to us as God's seal. The Spirit is poured out upon a poor chap called Don Carson, as if God is saying, this one is mine. I've sealed him. And this seal then is at the same time the kind of 
down payment of the promised inheritance that is still to come. Paul looks at all of this, the work of the triune God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, all of these glorious dimensions of salvation, and he begins in this spectacular prayer of thanksgiving, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, you may well ask what all of this has to do with the prayer that we find in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 15 and following. Instead of focusing on the prayer this time, which you will be doing in the Bible study itself, I'm really focusing on the first few words of the prayer. We read, For this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all God's people, I have not stopped giving thanks for you. And then he starts telling what he gives thanks for and what he prays for them for and so forth. But he introduces all of it with, for this reason. That is, the reason why Paul gives thanks as he does and offers the petitions that he does is precisely because of what God has already done. For this reason, the reasons he's already articulated, for which he praises God, the reasons that are bound up with the salvation that is ours, effected by Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, for this reason, I pray these petitions. In other words, instead of thinking, God has done his bit, now I do my bit with praying. Or, God has done his bit, and he's not doing any more, unless I pray. Rather, the whole thing becomes a seamless whole. Because God has done all of this, that's exactly why I pray along these lines. My prayers along these lines are exactly in line with God's determined purposes for His people as He saves them by grace in the mind of God, effected before the beginning of the world and worked out in space-time history in the death and resurrection of Christ and powerfully at work in us by His Holy Spirit. Now, because of all of these things, that's why I give thanks for you. That's why I ask for these kinds of signs of fruitfulness in your life that He then proceeds to unpack in the prayer before us in this study. So, have you um, noticed a certain template in uh, Paul's prayers? He has been outlining uh, God's sovereignty, especially in redemption. And as the anchor for his grace and as a source of the blessings enjoyed by his people, he thinks and he muses. And, and Paul finds certain specific things to pray for. And, you know, he always kind of, it seems like he starts his prayers off, what God has already sovereignly accomplished. It gives him the elements that make up what he will pray for. And he prays in line with God's purposes. You know, God's, God's purposes are, are promises from him. You know, Paul starts off with an introduction of thanks, of love, a gospel note, God's purposes that were chosen and sealed in his Holy Spirit. And then, and then he comes to the body of his prayer, remembering them in their faith, praying God's promised gifts of the Holy Spirit, of wisdom, of revelation, of hope, the power to believe, because Christ is ahead over everything. And why does he do this? It all goes back to how he starts for this reason, which, which he just articulated there. Seems like in all of his prayers, Paul precedes the beginning of his prayer by reflecting back on what he's already said. We saw that in, uh, here in, in verse 4. 
Ephesians 4 through 9. He says, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. According to the purpose of his will. To the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ. You know, I'm going to be a little extemporaneous here because this, this word wisdom keeps coming up in my mind. And I was thinking, um, you know, in 1 Corinthians 1.24, it says that Christ is God's wisdom. And, I, you know, I was, I was thinking about that this morning. Kind of a, a humorous little uh, thing happened a, a few years ago when I was, when I was still working. Uh, there was a girl at work, and she was talking about her daughter, who was about five, and she says to all of us standing around, she says, my daughter, she's the wisest person I know. <laughs> and I thought, what? She's five years old. What are you talking? I'm thinking this to myself. And I, so I said, well, you know, does your daughter play in the street? She says, well, no. I said, well, how does she know not to play in the street? She says, because I told her. I thought, okay, well, so where did the wisdom come from? You know, there's, there's another meme I saw, Dean Martin. Um, and it says, wisdom comes from experience, and experience comes from bad decisions. There's a lot of truth to that. Um, I don't know, the next few, uh, the next few cl couple classes, I'm, I'm going to reflect more on on wisdom. I want to I go there uh, a little bit more, I think. But, you know, here we go. Because God is sovereign, Paul offers thanks for God intervening with sovereign grace in our lives. Nevertheless, he always starts with words for this reason. And Paul ties his prayer to what God has sovereignly done in them, as exemplified by their faith and love. Because it's God that has worked in them. The assumption being that without God's transforming work, there would never have been, they would never have been converted, and none of us would have been. They would never have begun to display trust or faithfulness and the love that's now displayed in their lives. In the same way, we give thanks to God when we recognize his quiet, effective work in our lives, knowing that it makes us aware of the same work of God in other people's lives. You know, we're attentive to reports of the progress of the gospel. And, and also where it's shaded. I don't know if you saw this this week. I, I saw, uh, I don't know if you'd call it an announcement or something. It was on Facebook. Um, there's a new Bible coming out, the Queen James Version. I'm aware of that. When was the last time you thanked God for all these things, though, that we've been talking about? You know, he, he mentioned a, a, a hymn, it's an anonymous hymn, I, and I, I think it sums all this up. It says, I sought the Lord and afterwards I knew. He moved my heart to seek him, seeking me. It was not I that found, O Savior, true. No, I was found by thee. 
And because God's sovereign, Paul offers you know, intercession that God's sovereign, holy purposes and salvation of his people may be accomplished. Paul prays that Christians may grow in their knowledge of God because God's declared his intentions to expose his people to the glories of his grace. So it brings up two thoughts. Why wouldn't you want to grow in the knowledge of God? You know, I don't understand uh, people, and I know quite a few, who claim to be followers of Christ, yet they don't want to know him even more. Uh, reminds me of another, another person I, I heard say once uh, at work, that I'm a Christian, but I'm not a practicing Christian. What, it, what does that mean? You're not a practice. How can you be a Christian and not be a practicing Christian? The thing is, knowing God, it's not going to get worse to know God more. It's only going to get better. You know, we all used to chuckle at the way John pronounced the word glory. And, uh, you know, I'm not even going to attempt. But, you know, the more I've thought about it and studied these prayers, I, I, I feel like I've had a glimpse of what John saw already and wanted to pass on to us. And I'm not deifying John. I, I know I refer to him a lot, and, and I'm sure you do too, because I think he has given us uh, an illustration in his, the way he proclaimed the truth of the Scripture and of God. And uh, it's had an effect on us. You know, we recognize this little bit of glory, and it makes me want to know more of God, just to have a fuller picture of the glory that awaits us. How, how does that come about? Well, Paul answers the questions. For example, in Romans 15, he says, 15 verse 4, he says, For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures we might have hope. What is written is for our instruction to teach us the endurance taught in Scripture. And then in verse 5 he goes on, he says, May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live such harm, in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ welcomed you for the glory of God. All God's blessings are mediated through the Son and secured through the Son. He's the, he's the answer to Job's uh, comment or prayer. He says, you know, in, in Job uh, 9, how can a man be right before God? And then he, and later on in the chapter, he says, if only there was someone to mediate between God and I. And what does God do? He answers that prayer. He answers that prayer in Christ. You know, now, the, the, the use of Father of Glory is often associated um, with his self-manifestation to us in Christ. Jesus talks about the glory he shared with the Father uh, before the world began, and what he does on Calvary manifests God's glory and our ultimate destination. For Paul to pray to the Father of glory is to confess his awareness of God's proper domain, to declare his gratitude for God's self-disclosure, and to hold up the Father's domain as our ultimate hope. You know, here's the thing. I, I use this with the, the recruits down there at MCRD. God's not our homeboy. He's not our drinking buddy. He's not our bro. His name is to be hallowed. He's holy. We're nothing without the blessings won for us by 
the Son's work, and we're related to God through Christ. Note that there's a set of means to this desired end. Revelation, wisdom, all mediated by the Holy Spirit. Only the Holy Spirit's going to enable us to know him better. Therefore, we must pray for it. There's nothing more important. I, I think there's nothing more important than knowing God better. It's, it's the Holy Spirit that gives us the insight needed to grasp certain crucial truths. You know, in the men's Bible study, which I encourage you all to attend, we're studying the, we've been studying the Great Doctrines, uh, is a book by Martin Lloyd-Jones, and uh, the work of the Holy Spirit through the sermons of a, what we're seeing is uh, the work of the Holy Spirit through the sermons of a man who's already passed away but who in life exposited God to us. And ultimately, it's God alone who both reveals and enables us to grasp what he reveals. But we never grow in the knowledge of God unless we ask God for such things. Paul wants them to understand that their hope in life, in the new heaven and the new earth, is to be in the presence of God, the hope of their salvation. And to grasp this glorious inheritance and appreciate God, the value that God places on us. Not because we're good people, intrinsically worthy. We're only worthy because we've been identified with Christ. His righteousness reckoned to us. We all know that. But it's good to remember it all the time, too. I, I think about it a lot. I, you know, I'll get there in a second. Paul wants us to know God's great power to, to us who believe. He's not satisfied with a Christianity that's orthodox but dead, that's rich in theory but powerless to, to transform lives. Because God's sovereign, Paul offers a review of God's most dramatic displays of power, and he wants us to experience God's power. You know, if you, if you were uh, to describe God's power, how would you describe it? You know, would you say, oh, creation, the cosmos, Raising the dead, angels. You know, when I was thinking about this, I thought of a the tiniest creation. You know, I once I once read I was my for those of you that don't know, my mom is from Australia, uh, and I was going down to Australia uh, for for a couple months, and I wanted to learn more about Australia. This is back in the '80s. And so I was reading this book by an anthropologist called um, Down Among the Wild Men, and he makes a comment in there to one of his students about a spider that lives thousands of meters high in the, in the Himalayas. And his, uh, his comment was, you know, because the student says, how could that be? And he says, you know what? Life exists where it can, not where it's convenient. And I think about that. You know what? God did that. Or how about the platypus? God did that too. <laughs> Y'all familiar with what a platypus is? It's a duck-billed mammal with webbed feet down in Australia. You know, so Paul doesn't look for any of those um, ideas about how we describe God's power. An omnipotent God doesn't have degrees of difficulty. Rather, I think, Paul hunts for the most glorious, the most revealing of God's power and sovereignty. And he emphasizes three. 
He mentions the power exerted when Christ was raised from death. Here's the undoing of death and the destruction of sin. It inaugurates the new heaven and the new earth. Knowing that you don't want to know more of God, of Christ, knowing that, excuse me, knowing that, don't you want to know more of God in Christ and the power of resurrection? Then he brings, uh, it brings him to the power displayed in the exalted Christ, seated at the right hand of God, interceding for us who believe with all dominion. You know, there's levels of authority uh, which we know very little. There's, you know, there's demonic power, there's angelic power, not only in this world, but in the heavens. None, none of it, though, exceeds the, the authority and the dominion of Christ, as we read in, in Philippians chapter 2, 5 to 11. He says, Have this in mind among yourselves, which is yours in Jesus Christ, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. You know, Paul writes about this in the next chapter of Ephesians 2. Ephesians 2, 1 through 9. And you were dead in your trespasses and sin in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. I know I did. Among whom we once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved, raised up with him and seated with him in the heavenly places so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you've been saved through faith, and this not of your own doing. It's a gift of God, not a result of works so that no one can boast. I think that's one of the most important passages in Scripture. Not of your own doing. It's a gift of God. You know, that's a lot to ponder. It's a profound passage. It's a, it's a fork in the spiritual road. You know, have you spent time thinking about these powers and how they impinge on our lives now and into eternity? Paul declares the power exercised by Christ over everything for the church, his bride. All God's sovereignty is mediated through Christ. Not a drop of rain can fall outside the orb of Jesus' sovereignty. You ever think about, I don't know, it's supposed to rain this week, I think. When I lived in Oregon, it used to rain all the time. It, well, let me take that back. It used to drizzle all the time. It drizzled more than rain. But even each tiny drop, I, was, I used to think, man, there's trillions right now. I can't even count them. I, but I think God can. 
All of our health, our illnesses, our prayers, answer to prayer, they all fall within the sweep of the one who was crucified at Calvary. All the mysteries that remain for us, like the mysteries of prayer, dissolve into worship and gratitude. Our, our incentive to pray comes from that gratitude, at least it does for me, in line with what God has already purposed. Those purposes have become to us promises from God, accomplished as his will at Calvary, where divine love, as I've said before, divine love is as great as divine sovereignty. You know, thinking about his purposes or our promises, I, w I, I started thinking about the Sermon on the Mount. Because there's a, there's a good example of, of the promises. Looking at uh, chapter 5, starting in, in verse 2. He opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, promise, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, promise, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are those, blessed are the meek, promise, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, promise, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, promise, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, promise, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, promise, for they shall be called the sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, promise, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. All those devolve from God's purposes, promises. As God's purposes are accomplished, we're often going to feel uncomfortable at times, even uncomforted. Trials and how we handle them are an instrumental key to our spiritual growth. You know, those promises have a purpose that we can't always comprehend until we've turned and gone through them. You know, I've often thought during trials, one way that I've gotten through them is, you know what, at some point this is going to be over. Might be next hour, might be today, might be next week, might be next month, but eventually it's going to be over. You know, Abraham, I think about Abraham staying up all night, pondering God's purpose in sacrificing his son Isaac. And at dawn, he reckoned that God could raise the dead. Daniel, I think Daniel, as the dawn broke after spending a night in a lion's den, you know, I wonder if he said to himself, you know, I've made it this far, I wonder if they're hungry this morning. And I suspect that, you know, even John illustrated for us the same sort of reckoning before he was intubated and induced into a coma, he said, the Lord will sustain. And you know, I, I'm going to remember that the rest of my life. Paul praised God's purposes, and these purposes become his promises to us. The promise of his salvation for us in Jesus, that brings us to praise just like it does Paul. God took the initiative seeking us, and his Holy Spirit not only convicted us, he sealed us. goes back to that hymn that I mentioned earlier. I sought the Lord and afterwards I knew. He moved my heart to seek him, seeking me. It was not I that found, O Savior, true, no. 
I was found by thee. So that's what I have today, and uh, hope to see you all next week. End in prayer here. Heavenly Father, we have so much to be thankful for. More than words can express, more than we can even contemplate or write down. But we thank you with gratitude. Gratitude for what you did with the, the wisdom of Jesus on the cross for us. Thank you for taking us to the cross. Thank you for your holiness. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.